This is an AMI podcast. Good morning. It's Thursday, October the 12th, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown. Coming to you on AMI-tv, I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Coming up on the show today, AMI Plus has officially launched. Virginia Valletta explains the ins and outs of AMI's new streaming service. Comedian DJ Demers dropped a new special called Genetic Material. Fellow comedian Nick Thielen shares a review. And the government of Canada has joined the Global Coalition on Telecommunications. That rolls right off the tongue. Marco Flalo will break down the details. But the show begins with the top story of the day, and it's a very small update on the Arab-Israeli conflict going on in Gaza right now. Canada is set to begin airlifting people from Tel Aviv, Israel this week. Around 4,500 Canadians are currently in Israel. Hundreds of people have already requested evacuations. 70 Canadians located in Gaza have also requested evacuation, but the Canadian government says nothing can be done for them until Israel opens a humanitarian corridor out of Gaza. Let's switch gears to a few interesting stories from our neighbors to the south. The political gridlock continues in the United States. The House of Representatives still does not have a speaker. Andy Field has the latest. Late Wednesday, at least nine Republicans still didn't plan to back Steve Scalise for House Speaker. Holdout Marjorie Taylor Greene suggesting he doesn't have her vote because he has cancer and thinks he won't be able to do the job. Nancy Mace giving Scalise a thumbs down, saying he once attended an event linked to white supremacists. Republican Ken Buck says he can't support any candidate who dodges questions about the legitimacy of the 2020 election. Scalise would need 217 votes to secure the speakership. And over to a story about business and technology. There's been a lot of these technical justice and technology and economy intersections going on in the United States and Europe in the last couple of weeks. The IRS says Microsoft has a huge tax bill. Lisa Dwyer crunches the numbers. The Internal Revenue Service says Microsoft owes the U.S. Treasury $28.9 billion in back taxes plus penalties and interest. That figure, which Microsoft disputes, stems from a long-running IRS probe into how Microsoft allocated its profits among countries and jurisdictions in the years 2004 to 2013. Critics of that practice, known as transfer pricing, argue that companies use it to minimize their tax burden by reporting lower profits in high-tax countries and higher profits in lower-tax jurisdictions. Microsoft says it will appeal the decision within the IRS, a process expected to take several years. I'm Lisa Dwyer. The lawyers are always staying busy. In case you're keeping score at home, by the way, the intersection of legal affairs and big tech companies... Let's just talk about the last five weeks for a moment here. Antitrust case brought forward by U.S. prosecutors against Google. Antitrust case brought from U.S. prosecutors against Amazon. Over in the U.K., antitrust cases against Microsoft and Amazon for their 
uh, dominance of the cloud computing space, and now you get this story about the IRS battling with Microsoft over tax bills. It does feel like there's some sort of sea change going on with the intersection of government and technology. One more story from you, for you, and this is again from the Economic File. It's American, but I'm pretty sure as Canadians you can relate to this. The U.S. Federal Trade Commission is proposing a ban on junk fees. Ed Donahue explains. President Biden has made the removal of junk fees a priority of his administration. They show up on ticket bills, hotel bills, and utility bills. It's about simple fairness. You know, uh, folks are being tired of being taken advantage of and being played for suckers. The proposed rule would prohibit corporations from running up bills with hidden bogus fees and require honest pricing. The president says junk fees may not matter much to the wealthy. These junk fees can add up hundreds of dollars weighing down family budgets, making it harder to pay family bills. Businesses are skeptical the end of junk fees will result in savings. The Chamber of Commerce issued a statement earlier this year saying the Washington knows best approach would lead to fewer choices for consumers and make the economy less competitive. Ed Donahue, Washington. I'm not quite sure I buy their argument that it makes the economy less competitive if we can't put hidden fees on your bill. That said, there's probably a counter-argument that exists here that says, okay, I can't list this as a junk fee, I'm just gonna include it in the overall price. Is that necessarily better? Is that necessarily transparency? I think perhaps there's an argument to be said about when I see a price listed online and I click on the link, what is that total price going to be at the end, right? What's my, what's my transparency on the front end? But being annoyed with junk fees is not the same thing as actually dealing with junk fees. If they can just be rolled into the price anyway, you're still getting hit with the junk fee. So I suppose there might be a little bit of nuance and conversation to be had here. Of course, uh, nuance is not what the mass media does these days. That's why you come to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. You also come to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv for the daily polls at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. On Facebook, on Wednesday, you were asked, are you fed up with monthly subscriptions and subscription services? 91% of you said yes, and 9% of you said no. I knew I was asking a populist question to you at Accessible Media on Twitter and at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, and the population came screaming, 91%. 1% says, we are fed up. Stop hitting me with all these fees. Maybe I should have asked you about junk fees today, but we'll save that. We'll save that for another day. Today's daily poll topic comes from a conversation that Jenny Bovard will have later in the show about fall skincare. Because as the temperature drops, your skin might get a little bit wonky. So I'm curious, do you change up your skincare routine during the fall? Yes or no? Or... I don't do skincare at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Virginia Valletta, one of uh, the folks from AMI's digital department, is going to be part of the show in the next segment. But seeing as how Virginia is sitting next to me right now, Virginia, do you change up your fall skincare uh, this time of year? I have to admit, I, I do. I care less about my skincare at this at, at this stage. Um, but I'm I'm a former New Zealander, so we were very very aware of of skincare and sun care mm. um, when growing up. But um, now, yeah, in, in winter, I, I 
tend to, to look after my skin because, as you, as you said, things get a little dry and scaly and not terribly attractive. <laughs> yeah, and it, and, it, and it can happen fast, too, right? That, that oh, you yeah. Like, you really notice that, oh, it's 30 degrees last Wednesday, and now it's sort of around freezing in the morning in Toronto this week. <laughs> and, yeah, and, like, and, you, and you really do notice it. I noticed when I was shaving this morning, like, ooh, I need to get a better lotion here because I could feel the razor scratching against my skin. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and all of those, yeah, pay no attention to those, all of those anti-aging <laughs> claims. No, there's, there's no, there's no winning that battle, Virginia. Speaking, Gra of, speaking of junk fees. <laughs> yeah, 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 gravity is a constant on that one for sure. Hey, let's bring in Amanda Shikarchi on this one. Amanda, you actually texted me about three seconds after I sent out the poll this morning saying, Dave, I have thoughts. So Amanda, what are your thoughts on fall skincare? Yes. I love skincare, so that's something I've been trying to put into my life over these past few years because it's also been a form of self-care for me. But basically, for, for the most part, my skincare is consistent, cleanser, moisturizer, um, sometimes like a hydrating serum. But in the fall and winter, my skin tends to get a little bit dry, so I like to add a Vaseline or a lip chap on Ooh. my lips if they're dry or put hand cream on my hands. And I also enjoy doing those relaxing face masks that you put on and you set a timer and peel them off because I actually do feel like there are results. Like I definitely can feel that my skin is much smoother after I put them on. So big skincare fan over here. Yeah, unsurprisingly, the chapstick does not get carried around in my cargo shorts pocket during the summertime, but you better believe, Amanda, that every fall and winter coat that I have has a little chapstick uh, thingy right in there, right in the inside pocket, uh, ready to be deployed at any given moment. Definitely, yeah. Me too, actually, though. When I was in Italy, I brought like a chapstick with me that had SPF in it so Ooh. that I'm protecting my lips from the sun as I'm like, I, I usually just put it like put it on and then apply my makeup on afterwards and it still looks like really good and you're also getting protection from the sun. Mm -hmm. Alex Smythe, I've made this comment to you before that you are a bearded fellow, but that doesn't mean you still can't be taking care of that skin. Yeah, you know, I, I really don't do much in terms of skincare. Like, even even in terms of the beard stuff, I've kind of drifted away from it in the last little while. Uh, but, yeah, I'm, I've never been one for, you know, doing all the skincare routines. I'll, I'll pull out a chapstick if I need it, and it's usually too late. You know, my yeah, yeah. lips are all <laughs> cracked and everything like that. It's like, oh, it's it's treating a problem, not, not being preemptive on it. So that's typically my approach to most things. It's just kind of like, eh, I'll deal with it when when it becomes a problem. But uh, uh, on a regular, on a routine, yeah, I really don't do much of anything. So I'm I'm in that third category of I don't do skincare, really. So that's your formal answer. You see, I, I just, I don't do it. You're like only in emergency situations. So oh, I've got a pimp. Okay, here comes the Spectra Gel. Even then, I just kind of like, eh, well, it's a pimple, so what? I'm <laughs> just going to let it ride. I'll, I'll, I'll manage that. It's really just a, the lip chaps that really bug me more than anything that I'll, I'll kind of address. Yeah, yeah you know, I, I, my skincare routine is uh, limited to low, but I do change the soap that I use in the fall and the winter. I uh, move to a more moisturizing soap rather than uh, one of the drier, more popular brands uh, in the summertime. As you know, I'm always trying to uh, dig for uh, sponsorships on this show. 
So in the summer, Irish Spring should sponsor the show, and in the fall, it should be Dove Men Plus Care. There you go. So more sponsor bait being laid by Dave Brown here. A couple free plugs on the front end. But you should answer the poll at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Do you change up your skincare routine during the fall? Yes, no, or I don't do skincare. Again, social media at, on Twitter at Accessible Media, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. If you want to send an email, it's feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca. And if you want to pick up the phone and have your voice heard from coast to coast to coast on AMI-tv or around the world on the mighty AMI-audio podcast network, Give the show a call, 1-866-509-4545, 1-866-509-4545. Coming up after the break, AMI Plus has officially launched. Virginia Valletta will explain the ins and outs of AMI's newest streaming service. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. AMI Plus has officially launched. The streaming service offers a wide range of AMI's original content, all for the low, low price of free 99. <laughs> no, just free, just straight up free. Virginia Valletta is the director of digital content at AMI and Virginia is in studio right next to me. Hey, good morning, Virginia. Good morning, Dave. So Virginia, let's just start with the scale of this operation. How much work was this for you and your team? What was sort of the timeline here? We started talking about this, I would say about 18 months ago. Just wow. what, was, what was our strategy? We know that you know, our, our audience are avid consumers of content on all platforms, and we knew that we wanted to sort of change up how we were presenting our content online. We had the, the websites performing well, very popular, um, but we wanted to take a different approach. We wanted to go fully multi-platform. Mm. We wanted to be more content-centric. Um, so that's when we started to talk about what do we need to do, how do we need to put the tools in place to do that, um, and actually started developing AMI Plus a year ago. So it's been a year of you know, concentrated activity, a lot of design, a lot of development, mm. a lot of testing. Um, but it's been a fabulous um, project. We're really, really happy with the result and we're, we're looking forward to sort of moving forward with, with more platforms. Yeah, I loved the website, but it could sometimes be difficult to actually get to the content, right? Exactly. The website was awesome. It was really easy to use, but it was sometimes difficult to get exactly where you wanted to go. Exactly. What's so cool about AMI Plus is that all the work that you and your colleagues put in on the design front clearly shows. It's like super sleek, it's super user friendly, mm -hmm. but it's also very, very accessible and inclusive. What's the balance that you and your team struck there to maybe counter that narrative of, oh, if something's going to be accessible, that it's going to be ugly. How, how, did you, how did you guys battle that one? Exactly. We get that a lot. That's a really, really interesting discussion around, you know, the, the technical accessibility and, and making something beautiful as well. Um, what, we, what we did, we, we always build an accessibility to everything we do. Mm -hmm naturally. Um, but what we did was we, we looked at all of the platforms that are out there, you know, the, the Netflixes, the Disney Pluses, the Amazons, um, which, you know, we all use. Uh, we're all familiar with them. It's, it's, all, it's become an intuitive 
experience. So we took those platforms, you know, not, not wanting to duplicate them, but looked at the best practices that they had deployed, because they've been in the market for years, they've, they've made enhancements, they kind of know what they're doing. Um, so we looked at the best practices from those platforms and, and um, leveraged them on AMI Plus and the design. Uh, we worked with a designer, Ryan, um, who's our UX designer, uh, working with Arslan, who's our lead developer. Mm -hmm. Um, so he developed a, or they developed a, a design for the, the platform that, that, you know, preserved the accessibility, but also made it a beautiful, intuitive, and, and really joyful experience. We think uh, to be able to, to navigate and watch our content. I saw Arslan in the office a couple of weeks ago, and it looked like uh, maybe you'd had him in a hole there for a couple of months, uh, deep in the programming, because uh, he was looking a little blurry-eyed. And I was like, Arslan, what brings you to the office today? Human contact. Human yes. contact brings me to the office today. That's the life of a developer. <laughs> That's the life of a developer through and through. But you know, Virginia, this wasn't just a situation where you and your colleagues did this excellent job, create this cool website. You put this out to the public for some beta testing. In fact, I read a bunch of hot sheets encouraging people yes. to go do some of that beta testing. What came out of that? What came out of some, some of the user trials? Um, and thank you for, for doing that, Dave. Um, what, we, what we wanted to do is, is add another layer to the, the testing that, again, we always do. Um, we do you know, technical testing with a company called Fable, who are professional accessibility testers who help us with the technical and the, you know, the user experience side of it. But we wanted to add and, and give the opportunity to our, our community to look at the site you know, ahead of time, sort of have premium access to it. Tell us what you think. Tell us what we're doing right. Tell us what we could improve um, and be transparent about it. Um, so you know, we've, we've uh, responded back to people to let them know that we've, we've heard what they've said and we're, we're adjusting. Um, we're also sharing those bug fixes on our AMI newsletter. If you're not a subscriber, please sign up um, so that we're fully transparent and, and you know, people get the, or our, our audience gets the idea that, um, that we're, we're working with you to improve mm. this site. We're not just, here it is, it's done, we're not going to touch it again. We're going to continually improve it and iterate it. How do you approach that living organism side of this? Because you're right, it's not just a launching and then a beta test and then a relaunching. It, this lives. You're always adding new content. You're looking for new yeah. features. How does the organism evolve? The digital organism, if the you digital will. Digital organism. <laughs> that's a really good way of putting it. Uh, but that's that's the that's the really cool thing about it, though. That you put something out there and then you listen to um, to feedback coming in. In fact, some of the feedback we heard from the beta testers when we, we reached out to them and asked them to you know, tell us more about what, what you've said, they really loved it. They, uh, we had a couple of responses that no one ever does this. No one ever responds to, some, to me saying there's an accessibility issue with mm. your site. Um, so that was, that was kind of, um, it was interesting to hear and, and, and you know, I'm, I'm ashamed that, that more companies don't do that, um, but there it is. Um, but it was it was interesting to get that extra layer of um, feedback that is you know unvarnished. We wanted to make sure that we were getting you know if it was positive feedback, that's great. But if it was you could do better about this, that was mm -hmm. also fabulous, and that helps us improve con you know continually. I know when the AMI.ca website got relaunched a couple of years ago, there was a lot of great accessibility preferences built into the website. What are some of the preferences available to a user on AMI Plus? We have preserved those great accessibility preferences. They are available on AMI Plus as well. So you're able to change your font type, your font size, contrast. You're able to change the, um, the, 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 the appearance of buttons. Um, so you're really able to customize to your personal needs. 
And the other thing we've introduced with AMI Plus is the idea of a, of a sign-in. Um, again, this is free. Um, you do not have to pay for the for the site, but you have the opportunity to sign in and create a profile, mm. and that profile will preserve your accessibility settings and your favorites if you have favorite content. Um, that will that will save all of those settings across multiple browsers. Here's where I ask you uh, a question based in my Luddite-ism, but my experience as someone who peruses the web and tries to put web accessibility preferences into various apps and sites. I tried to pay my phone bill this morning on the app, and let's just say, Virginia, it did not appreciate that I wanted a bigger font size, and it became a hunt and peck game for me to actually pay my phone bill. So here's my question to you, knowing that maybe this might get a little too deep into the weeds, mm -hmm. how difficult is it to build a, a website or a web-based platform that has that flexibility where changing the font size or the font type doesn't send it into utter disarray? It's, it's an art, um, and, I, and I cannot speak to the technical side of it. That's, that's why... Yeah, please don't. I'll I, start drooling. I, I, I My work. eyes will gloss over and I'll start drooling. <laughs> I, I work with, a, with very talented <laughs> designers and developers who, who know how to do that, but, but they spend a lot of time understanding um, the, the, the responsiveness of different devices. So we, we test for different devices to make sure um, that the, the font size, the, um, the positioning of, of, of items on the page actually works when you switch to a different device. Mm -hmm. um, it is definitely an art to be able to do it, but it is something that we, we pay a lot of attention to because we know that, our, again, our users use a, a wide variety of devices. Um, so we don't want to, you know, to um, isolate anyone who's, who's using, a, you know, say, a tablet or a mobile. Uh, or a desktop, we want to make sure that the that the site works with all of those platforms. So this is also important, right? This is not necessarily asking somebody to download an app. It's literally going to amiplus.ca, amiplus.ca, plus is spelled out, P-L-U-S. See, I'm good at that, I can do the spelling. amiplus.ca, <laughs> what's the compatibility and advantage of being sort of a web-based platform like that? Uh, yeah, we we made the decision to go with web first because it was it was um, a way to get to market fairly quickly, and we know that um, our 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 community really likes their web browsers. Um, they love mobile as well. Mobile is 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 up there as well. They're kind of tied for mm -hmm. for first. Mm -hmm. um, so we wanted to go with web first. We will be moving on to reskinning and redesigning our mobile apps. Um, so stay tuned for that. Okay. Uh, but we wanted to get to um, the, the website first to get it out there and really uh, launch the the product line. I, I refer to it as the product line of, of AMI Plus. Uh, but we will be moving on to different platforms and expanding that product line across different devices. And Virginia, this is maybe a reiteration of what you were mentioning before, but the service itself is free. There are some possibilities of creating accounts or login information. So maybe just go over a little bit about that side of it, the, both the importance of making this content free, but mm -hmm. also what might be available to somebody if they do want to create an account that still remains free. Of course, yeah, the, the service is completely free. Um, that was that was never in in question. Um, we don't want any barriers to anyone being able to um, to experience and, and you know, really enjoy our content. So we do not charge for any of, any of this and we don't plan to. Um, the idea of, of creating profiles was again to really start to create a personalized experience. So it's not generic. Um, you, can, you can create and, and set your own personal settings um, for you know, accessibility and, and we're thinking of some other um, uh, settings that we can add in there. We don't want to make it, you know, we don't want to overload it. Mm. We don't want to make it too complicated because that's the other um, side of accessibility. If you add too many features in there, you by nature make it less accessible or less usable. 
Mm. Um, so the idea of, of the profiles, again, totally free, uh, and you don't have to set up a profile, but if you choose to set up a profile, enter your, uh, and your email address, your, your name, you can save your, your accessibility preferences and your favorite content. Cool, very cool. Hey, Virginia, thank you for this. Thanks for taking a little bit of time to unpack AMI Plus, and thank you for the 18 months of work from you and your colleagues to welcome. create this cool new platform. <laughs> Stay tuned. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's Virginia Valletta, Director of Digital Content at AMI. AMI Plus is available online. Just punch into your bar, amiplus.ca. Plus is spelt P-L-U-S. So A-M-I-P-L-U-S dot C-A to get your hands, eyes, and ears on AMI+. In 60 seconds, Alex Smythe has the weather story of the day, but first, here is Canadian press reporter Karen Rebo with your Morning Business Minute. Strength in the utilities, telecommunications, and financial sectors helped lift Canada's main stock index nearly 1% higher yesterday. Toronto's TSX index gained 162 points to close at 19,663. New York's Dow Jones average rose 65 points and the Nasdaq added 96. In Tokyo this morning, the Nikkei index surged 558 points and our dollar is trading a little higher at 73.59 cents U.S. As 4,300 Canadian auto workers prepared to vote this weekend on a historic tentative contract reached with GM, America's United Auto Workers Union is revving up its nearly month-old strike against the Detroit Three. 8,700 members went on strike against the largest and most profitable Ford plant in the world, a Kentucky truck plant in Louisville. Ford called the strike expansion grossly irresponsible. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Karen Rebeau. Today's weather story focuses on Super Typhoon Bolivin. It is currently off the coast of Asia, but will start to make its way eastward to North America. While Canada will not be hit with typhoon-like conditions in any way, this system will still have an impact on the weather across the country. Due to the system's power, it will actually alter the jet stream and lead to both above and below seasonal conditions. In BC, the system will bring warm and a warm and dry spell in the region. So there's going to be above average temperatures. It will make for quite a pleasant mid-October stretch. Moving eastward, however, the impact is going to be a bit more on the negative side because the jet stream is going to dip, resulting in below seasonal conditions in places like Manitoba, Ontario, and Quebec. Temperatures could be nearly 10 degrees below average, and there is a chance of the first snowfall of the season in parts of that region. As we make our way to the east coast, it may result in more rain and wet weather. The system will begin to take shape late next week and could linger in the region until Halloween. So that's it for the weather. Coming up next, DJ Demers dropped a new comedy special called Genetic Material. Comedian Nick Thielen shares his review. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Comedian DJ Demers is back with a new special. Genetic material explores topics ranging from chess 
to fatherhood. Definitely some differentiation there. Comedian Nick Thielen watched the special. Hey, good morning, Nick. Good morning, Dave. Thanks for having me. Nick, always a pleasure to have you. Glad to have you doing a bit of a review here on DJ's newest special. I mentioned those themes, fatherhood, chess. What did you think of the choices of uh, themes for DJ's special? I, I definitely enjoyed it. I think, um, you know, I'm a little bit familiar with some of DJ's material. Of course, he was on uh, season 11 of America's Got Talent, as well as uh, Conan O'Brien, so I know a little bit about him. Um, and it was nice to see like him, like, as you mentioned, talking about fatherhood and really kind of going into uh, detail about that. Some of it is a bit of, I don't know, I would say there's some coarse language and uh, crass material, but there is definitely like he's talking about a personalized lived experience. So I really, really enjoyed that part of it. I have these moments when I'm watching a stand-up special that I'll never forget. Uh, the, the one I watched this year of John Mulaney's uh, newest special, where he was telling the story of an interview that he gave to GQ magazine, I was crying laughing, crying laughing about that moment in the special. I still think about that moment and giggle and laugh. What moments stood out to you in DJ's special genetic material? Yeah, one one particular moment that I loved was when he, uh, of course, he's uh, hard of hearing, so um, he particularly did a did quite a few bits where he uh, interacted with the audience, and one of those moments was with uh, audiologists, which are hearing doctors, and uh, sort of they wanted to be a part of the special, and he he allowed them to be a part of it, and uh, it was really quite fun, um, and. Uh, also, he talked to a uh, stroke survivor. Uh, just kind of interesting how he uh, encouraged people to be a part of it. And also, like, I like that um, with that, when he was talking to the audiologist, he sort of uh, made the interpreter part of the special because the interpreter thought that, you know, he couldn't hear the person's name properly. So then she's telling him what her name was and stuff. So, uh, you know, so it's it was great the way he uh, incorporated the interpreter, and especially when it came to things like the crass uh, use of you know like language or sexual things that like just having her um, sign those things back to him and being like, oh man, I wish I could see that uh, and see what you guys are are laughing at, and also like playing with the I don't know if you guys are mature enough to have an interpreter right now. Like maybe we need to to tone it back so that you, when you guys are mature enough, you can have accessibility in this show. You know? So I love that part of it. <laughs> yeah. What are your general thoughts on comedians working a little crass or working a little blue? I kind of like it. I kind of like, uh, I kind of like comedy that makes my hair stand up a little bit. I mean, I, I like it. I like uh, pushing the boundaries. I think to a certain extent, you know, when you're talking about disability or, or to this extent, you're going to have some people that are uh, offended a little bit. One thing I didn't particularly like is uh, DJ brought up the fact that, um, you know, he talked about uh, he gets sort of a second wave of laughter when the interpreter tells the joke to the deaf people. And then he said there's a third of laughter when he when the stupid deaf people uh, cue in on it. So I thought that was maybe a little, you know, I don't know. I don't love the idea of calling people stupid. But again, like, uh, I, I I tend to try to be on the side of trying to get the audience to work with you. But then again, I, I also loved how, uh, how I was talking about my wife is one of the top five people I've dated. 
her <laughs> personality is terrible, but I, I like, you know, I like, she's one of the top five people I dated. So that was definitely one of the things I highlighted in terms of being just a funny moment that, uh, that I really, you know, a tidbit that I loved about it. Uh, in terms of the way DJ released the special, he both uploaded it to his own website, but also on YouTube. What are your thoughts on the advantages of having digital distribution that allows self-distribution for comedians? Um, I think, I don't know, I, I definitely have thought about the advantages of YouTube. I think it definitely makes it so you can get it out to a wider audience. I also, I don't know, I think personally for me, when I release a special, I might not release it on YouTube right away just because I like the idea of people wanting to, you know, see my see me perform and then perhaps purchase, uh, you know, the physical thing and have me sign it. Maybe that interaction is really nice uh, so I can get to know my fans per se i hope i have some out there and uh um no uh, i think i think though that you know having the special out on 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 youtube does does get him out to a lot of people and a lot of people do know who he is based on the fact that you know he was on america's got talent and has been on conan so so definitely uh, a good way to get out there and i think still there's you know merch available on his website and stuff so definitely still ways for people to support him and and, and purchasing from him physically i just i don't know if it's the best for for someone like starting out especially considering the fact that with a you know an hour or 45 minutes of material for me i've been doing stand-up for eight years so to to give that away you know for free essentially would be a tough choice but um but definitely one that I uh, one that I admire and one that I uh, appreciate to to expand your audience yeah. and your fans. You know, it's free to a degree. If you get enough, if you get enough views, you can start getting some payments on that for for, like, for, for what that's yeah. worth. Yeah, you can monetize it at a certain degree, but you you start you need you need to be getting into like the tens of thousands of views to start actually getting exactly. any kind any kind of real money. Absolutely. I, I, this might, I have 32 subscribers to my YouTube channel right now, so I don't know how many, uh, how many, how much, uh, how much monetary money I'll receive from it, but you know, a dollar or two a month, maybe. Nick, what do you think makes a comedy special stand the test of time? Because there are a couple that to this day people talk about. Maybe Dave Chappelle's For What It's Worth, maybe a Eddie Murphy's Delirious, a bunch of the George Carlin stand-up specials. You know, I mentioned even the John Mulaney that I watched uh, this year, Baby J, that I thought was just so funny. W what do you think makes a comedy special stand the test of time? You know, when you're talking about those specials, you know, the John Mulaney one where, where he's talking about his drug rehab that he went through, one for me that stands out is Adam Sandler's 100% Fresh. Mm. Um, and in particular is because it doesn't reference um, time-sensitive things. So I know that a lot of people have talked about their COVID experience um, and and sort of, so that, that sort of uh, wears off after a while or like, you know, maybe Donald Trump things, political things. Usually, those those things don't really um, last very long. But when you look at someone like George Carlin and some of his specials, which was, I think, his last one was you know two thousand seven or so, and then you look at you know twenty 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 one, and he sort of has this idea that maybe it will shut down. You know, so sort of like this idea that. Um, you know, he's he's sort of forecasting the future. Um, but generally, I think um, talking about 
personalized lived experience without putting a a date or a timestamp on it is a very effective way to create humor, but also uh, make it timeless. It's probably one of the reasons why a TV show like Seinfeld remains funny to this day, because it's so much about the human experience. Absolutely, yeah, and and that's uh, one of the uh, things that I loved about uh, about DJ Special. I mean, I also enjoyed. He talked a lot about. Uh, uh, IVF and the experience uh, of his wife going through labor. I thought it was quite funny that he talked about the fact he was only able to uh, go for snacks four times during the uh, birth, which was quite hard on him. And his wife and him were equally exhausted. So there's definitely like moments of like, you know, uh, not so crass comedy. But I, you know, I, I would say for me, for me to, it would be hard for me to give like a, you know, a, a 10 out of 10 review, but I would say probably this is a solid, you know, eight out of 10. So I definitely would recommend this to anyone interested in, in DJ Demers comedy. Um, like I said, I hadn't seen much of his comedy uh, from before, like his previous four specials, um, but really enjoyed this one. And I like how he brought his personalized uh, lived experience from that moment in his life because for me when i've been doing comedy for uh, eight years or so like the jokes i wrote out in 2010 or so are sort of starting to seem like stale and outdated and i kind of wanted to get get those out and then oh. also get a you know get the I, i'm sort of transitioning to maybe being a father at some point myself so seeing seeing that and seeing how he handled that and knowing that it doesn't just all have to be about his disability was really quite refreshing for me and to not be labeled as a disabled comedian, but to be someone that has funny jokes that just happen to reference material, disabled material once in a while is I think really the goal. And I think DJ kind of knocked it out of the park with this one. Yeah, djdemers.com to find the special, djdemers.com, djdemers.com, djdemers.com. Hey Nick, on the way out here, what's going on with you and your comedy stuff? Any sets to check out here in the near future? Yeah, absolutely. I've got a comedy uh, Halloween show, Halloween Heller in Red Deer. Then on the 27th, I'll be at the Laugh Shop in Calgary with Ryan Niemiller. And then on the 28th, I'll be going to Drum Heller to check out some dinosaurs and make those people laugh. So I'm excited about that. And uh, of course, working on the stand-up special, which will be out like later on in uh, 2024, maybe 2025, by the time it gets done on public platforms. Right on. Hey, Nick, thank you for this. Have a great day. Thank you so much. Uh, you too, Dave. That's Nick Thielen, a stand-up comedian in Alberta. Coming up after the break, how does fall weather affect your skin? Jenny Bovard has some tips and tricks when it comes to skin care. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. You might be feeling the chill of fall in your bones. Staying warm, that's easy enough. Layers, sweaters, you know the drill. 
Something else happens to your body when the temperature drops. Your skin can get a bit wonky. Jenny Bovard is no stranger to skincare, and Jenny is the host of the Low Vision Moments podcast. Hey, good morning, Jenny. Good morning, Dave. I have a feeling we're going to get a little more personal than <laughs> even normal today. Yeah, even though we're talking about the surface, we're still scratching under the surface when it really gets down to it. Ooh, uh, don't make me itchy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jenny, I'll definitely tell you here in the last couple of days when the temperatures dropped about 23 degrees, uh, I can already feel it in my knuckles. My skin's changing a little bit with the colder temperature. How does fall weather affect your skin? Well, like you said, as the temperatures drop up suddenly and late this year and the breeze picks up, we've got a lot of that wind here on the East Coast. I find myself with drier, more flaky skin, especially on the money maker, on the face, around the nose in particular for me, the cracked dry lips come out this time of year and, and like you, the hands. I think that's just something that a lot of us experience. So what are you, what are you doing in terms of a daily routine to mitigate the effects? Ooh, it's a long answer, Dave. But one major thing that I change is the soap that I shower with. Mm. My skin doesn't like the humidity in the summer months, so I use a real boring bar soap. But the cooler weather means I can switch over to a more nourishing, sort of um, uh, nicer smelling as well body wash. And uh, in the shower, I like to use this J.R. Watkins. It's a lemon cream scent. So it's a more Whoa, that's nourishing a, that's a, that's a That's a big bottle you're holding up on air jenny's yeah, buying get, in bulk over here money's worth yeah i get my money's worth and this one is nice and safe there's no parabens or anything like that um but it's nicer smelling and it's more nourishing to the skin and that's sort of the theme here but we can't forget to exfoliate this time of year i do that a lot more as well it takes away that dry flaky top layer of skin i use an exfoliating face wash about once a week Ooh. and for the areas like the backs of my arms and my actual back i use a big wooden brush in the shower a lot of people to exfoliate they'll use one of these exfoliating gloves even if a face cloth a nice clean face cloth can be really helpful to exfoliate the face as well we can't forget about the lips Dave, I know sometimes you forget about the lips based on previous conversations. They get cracked this time of year, and some people even use a lip scrub to exfoliate their lips. I haven't gone there yet, but what I do is every night I use a lip mask, and it's I have Burt's Bees. It's a little tiny container I'm holding up here. Uh, they do not test on animals, Burt's Bees, and it. Le I wake up in the morning with like much juicier lips this time of year when I use this mask mask so a lot of different products available for the lips too don't forget about those lips <laughs> yeah that's been one of the uh, general skincare routine conversations you and i have had here uh where you're always reminding me dave you've got to protect those lips you know they're they're part of the overall money maker that is your, your, your you know your, your beautiful face and lips here for uh, being a national tv star uh, jenny you mentioned the switching to a body wash that might be a little bit more nourishing i also make a switch from my boring irish spring bar soap in the summer to uh, a dove men plus care moisturizing soap so i have my moisturizer kind of included inside the soap that i'm switching switching to what about you do you do you go above and beyond with the moisturizing i do i'm dave i'm at a fun age where sometimes i get pimples in my fine lines on my face oh, no. and i said <laughs> we were going to get personal and here we are but i've forever seriously had very sensitive and acne prone skin even in my late 30s now yeah same Growing here up in the 90s S same here, you may by the remember 
people probably remember in the 90s, we were trying to dry out our acne and using harsh products, but moisturizing my face uh, and acne prone areas back then just didn't seem, it seemed counterproductive, but we were mistaken. We were wrong. And I've learned that well-moisturized skin, particularly the face is happier skin overall. I've got a whole process for daytime before my sunscreen. I use a really light oil controlling moisturizer from the body shop. This little tub I'm holding is so loved and worn that you can't even read the label at all anymore, but this is the seaweed <laughs> one. I use this under my my sunscreen and my makeup on the daily. It helps control the oil during the day. And at night, I use a more intense moisturizer specifically for the nighttime. And this one is aloe based again from the body shop. I'm holding up a little 50 milliliter tub and, um, and they again, do not test on animals, the body shop and nighttime is the time to do it. You're not doing anything else. So why not wake up with a more moisturized face? They have a really nice vitamin E night cream as well, the body shop. So Again, do it at night if you have the wherewithal to do a routine. But Dave, don't shy away from a beauty mask. A nice nourishing mask once in a while, maybe once a month when you're feeling dry. You can find these anywhere, like at pharmacies. It's it's for you, it's for me, it's for everybody. Mm. Don't shy away. Jenny, you mentioned sunscreen. And I, I know for a fact that sunscreen, although very good when it comes to protecting my skin from the sun, can lead to some of those oily buildups or those acne buildups. I, I, have, I have a similar reaction to you. You are a total pro when it comes to sun protection. You put me to shame with the great work you do on sun protection. How does the fall change your ongoing battle with sunburn? Well, thank you for saying I'm a pro. I appreciate that. It's come with a lot of trial and error, but with the face, the lips, the neck, the ears, the hands, these are all still exposed to the elements, no matter what time of year, unless we're wearing gloves in the winter. But when I leave the house in the fall, not much changes, except maybe my everyday sunscreen is no longer SPF 50. It's an SPF 30 now because those UV rays are a lot less powerful and the chance of sweating throughout the day are are much lower. Right. I use Neutrogena Clear Face Dave. It is SPF 30 and it's known to not cause breakouts. So Neutrogena is a great brand for those of us with sensitive skin. Again, lots of trial and error. Um, you can also get a moisturizer that has uh, SPF built right in. So SPF 30 is available right in a daily moisturizer. So there's no excuse. And we still have the lip balms that are available with SPF as well. But David's sweater and denim jacket weather layer season, like you mentioned. So those SPF clothes that I wear during the hotter months, the polyester, the nylon, they come out a lot less often. And we can sort of up the ante in the fashion department and, and sport like a, a nice floral <laughs> blazer that I have on today. Nice. I love it. Yeah, the floral blazer you're rocking today is top, top tier. You know, Jenny, uh, you mentioned some of the clothing choices we make during the summer and how that might influence uh, where our sun exposure comes. I had a little bit of a blind spot this summer. I was wearing a lot of golf shirts and was typically keeping the collar like wide open. So I've noticed here in the last couple of weeks as maybe some of the sunburn around my face is uh, calming down a little bit and the rest of my arms is calming down. I've got this little V shape right at the top of my chest. So it's one of these reminders that you've got a sunscreen everywhere or else you're gonna Every get these, these little spots. <laughs>
For me, it's the ankles. I always have to, I almost leave the house in my running pants often and, and my ankles are showing and I'm like, oh, Jenny, you got to do the ankles. So you're like all ready to go. Um, but it's good that you're figuring out those little things, Dave, because we all have those little things. Everyone's skin is different. Oh yeah, 100%. Hey Jenny, this is fantastic. I appreciate the ongoing series that we're unintentionally doing about skincare. Pleasure, always a pleasure. <laughs> That's Jenny Bovard, the host of the Low Vision Moments podcast. You can find that podcast on your favorite podcasting platforms. It's part of the mighty AMI-audio podcast network. Coming up in 60 seconds, there's a reboot of a popular 90s sitcom debuting today. But first, Sony's updated PS5 is slimming down. Mike Dubusky checks the specs in Tech Trends. Sony has updated the PS5. There's not a whole lot that they've really changed to the to the formula. They've really kept it pretty simple. IGN's Taylor Lyles says the console looks like a shrunken down version of last year's model, though it still dwarfs competitors. It's definitely smaller than its counterparts, but it, there's still some some pretty chunky chunky boys. Weight is down though, and there's more storage. It used to come with like 825 gigabytes of internal storage. It now has one terabyte, which is a lot. Ultimately, Lyles says there's not a ton of reason for current PS5 owners to upgrade. But there is plenty for those that have held off on buying one for whatever reason, and I think that's mostly who it's for. The pricing changes a bit with the digital version now 50 bucks more expensive at $449. The standard PS5 is just under 500. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. Thank you very much, Mike. From video games to television, Amanda Shikarchi in the entertainment world, one of my favorite TV shows is getting a reboot. Yes, this is really exciting. So the first two episodes of Frasier will premiere on Paramount Plus today. It is a revival of the 1993 sitcom. Most of the cast are new. However, there's the original, some of the original producers and casting director. It takes place 10 years after Frasier's time in Chicago. He returns home to Boston after his father's death as he is determined to mend his relationship with his son, Freddie. However, it is difficult for Frazier to accept Freddie's decision to become a firefighter. So Dave, as someone who watched the series, what are your expectations for this revival? Well, I loved the show in the 1990s. It was so clever, it was so funny, it was so well cast. The interactions between the characters were just amazing. They developed this fantastic chemistry that by late in the series, they would actually go into scenes without a formal script. They would have their beats or their points they needed to get to, and then they would just let the actors work their way to get there through a number of takes. And that chemistry was just phenomenal, and it was so funny, and it was so so just different than a lot of stuff that was on in the 90s. My expectations, Amanda, unfortunately are low because sometimes when it's been 20 years since the show's been on TV, maybe some of the thrill is gone. Yeah, I know what you mean. I felt the same way. I was watching a prequel to, I was watching Supernatural and they did a prequel recently. And I was like, oh no, are they going to stick to the story? Like, are they, how much are they going to change it? But I was actually surprised with how much they were able to keep the same. And, you know, sometimes with revivals and reboots, you have to give it a chance before you are like, oh, this is not 
like not the best so yeah definitely i would say give it a fair shot so dave will you be hitting play today when well, the first two episodes drop well i don't have paramount plus so that is probably going to be a hindrance of some kind to get me to press play on this but i'll also say this amanda i'm i i'm reluctant knowing that a bunch of the characters from the original are not going to be there knowing that his dad martin will not be part of the show knowing that niles his brother won't be part of the show knowing that daphne the maid or Roz, the producer won't be part of the show i mean th these are the core of what made the show funny it wasn't just kelsey Grammer playing Frasier, so I'm a little bit leery of pressing play. I saw a review in Rolling Stone that really kind of panned the show, so I find that to be a little bit dissuasive. But maybe if by chance the internet gods uh, find a way to put this on my television, I'll give the first couple shows a crack. Because, I mean, the Frasier character is a beloved character, not just for his 90s sitcom. He was a great character on the sitcom Cheers in the 1980s. So you're talking about four decades of a character who's much beloved being brought back. So if I get a sniff that people are enjoying this show and other fans are enjoying this show and it seems like it's worth my time, I would consider hitting play. What about you? Definitely. I like just reading about it yesterday, like the characters seem really intriguing and I find the storyline very interesting and I feel like it's a nice, fun, easy show to go to when things are getting a bit heavy. So I definitely think well, I don't have Paramount Plus like you. So if I do get Paramount Plus, I'm definitely tempted to hit play on it. Yeah. And of course, in Canada, to get Paramount Plus, you do that through Amazon Prime. So it's almost like a double paywall. I've got the Amazon Prime. If there's a free seven-day trial of Paramount Plus, maybe I'll wait till the whole season drops and we'll just binge our way through that one and remember to cancel the free trial five or six days later. Amanda, thank you for this. Have a great day. Thank you so much. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Oh, baby, I hear the blues are calling. Toss salads and scrambled eggs. They're calling again. That's what's coming your way. Maybe. I don't know. I hope, I hope Kelsey Grammer sings in the show. That's, of course, how they used to wrap up Frasier back in the day. Coming up after the break, they're calling again for a regional news update and a sports chat with Brock Richardson. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. It's Thursday, October the 12th, 2023. Coming up in the second hour of the show, the government of Canada has joined the Global Coalition on Telecommunications. Marco Flalo breaks down the details. And the memoir, North of Normal, has been adapted into a movie. Michael McNeely shares his thoughts on the film. But the hour begins with the regional news update. Starting in the territories, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau will be in Yellowknife today. John Kennedy looks ahead. 
Trudeau is scheduled to make a housing announcement and then attend a roundtable discussion with the Yellowknife Chamber of Commerce. The capital's 20,000 residents were forced out of their home for three weeks in the summer due to an encroaching wildfire. The flames didn't enter the city, but destroyed most buildings and homes in Enterprise, a hamlet of 100 people that was located near Hay River. Trudeau toured the area yesterday, walking among many burned-out homes and vehicles as he spoke with officials. John Kennedy, the Canadian Press. And over to British Columbia, the mayor of Vancouver has released a plan to speed up housing construction. Ken Sim released a seven-point plan that directs city staff to prioritize new housing construction, allow for increased density around transit hubs, speed up a plan for 26 village areas, and increase enforcement of short-term rental regulations. The city council also unveiled a digital process for residents to build laneway homes on their properties. And over to the prairies, transit workers in Winnipeg held an information picket on Wednesday. Workers have signaled their intent to strike. The president of the Amalgamated Transit Union Local 1505 says they've been at the negotiating table for almost a year and progress has been slow. There are meetings with a conciliator scheduled for this week and next. The union represents more than 1,400 members in Winnipeg and Brandon, including bus drivers, mechanics, tradespeople, and support workers. And over to Ontario, the trial of an Ontario man accused of killing four members of a Muslim family resumes today. Emily Javesky has more. The trial is expected to hear from Nathaniel Veltman's defense lawyers. Veltman is accused of deliberately hitting the Afzal family with his truck in June 2021 while they were out for a walk in London, Ontario. He's pleaded not guilty to four counts of first-degree murder and one count of attempted murder. Jurors have seen a video of Veltman telling a detective he'd been motivated by white nationalist beliefs and that his attack was politically motivated. Emily Jovesky, the Canadian Press. And finally, over to the Atlantic region, Nova Scotia says the Atlantic Loop is no longer part of the province's plan to reach its 2030 renewable energy targets. The idea was to get hydroelectricity from Quebec and Labrador. Natural Resources Minister Tory Rushton says costs have ballooned for the project. Rushton says costs have increased by 300% to more than $9 billion. Rushton also says Quebec has not made firm enough commitments to the project. That's your look at the regional news. Here comes Brock Richardson with a sports chat. Boy, Brock, what a night of hockey that was. The 7 p.m. Eastern game between Montreal and Toronto ending 6-5 to in the shootout for a Toronto victory. Even the high score total, Brock, doesn't tell the story of what a compelling hockey game that was. Yeah, I told you just before we came on that I was coming on here this morning regardless of win, lose, or draw for whatever team it was, that was a really good hockey game. And we talked about this a little bit yesterday in that if we're looking at Montreal, that's the type of game that, that like, you're looking for. You're looking for that step. You're looking for them to say, okay, we had a lead. We relinquished it. We got a lead back. We relinquished Like, that's the competitive nature of that hockey game that you go as a Montreal Canadian fan. You say, okay, I, I can accept that as a, as a fan base. There's no doubt they're in a rebuild, sure. 
On the flip side of that, in Toronto, though, you could make the argument of the same similar thing where you could say, well, they dug themselves out of a hole. You could also look at it the same way I did when I came out of my weekly group last night and saw that it was 2 nothing and went, oh, this is off to a great start. But then we, we dug ourselves out of the hole, and here we are. So all in all, really good, compelling hockey game and really enjoyable, even as a insider fan but if you're an outsider fan and just like the rivalry you would have loved that last night loved it yeah the positives like you said for montreal are that a couple of young players really showed up in a big way uri slavkovsky the former number one overall pick from a couple of years ago really really had a couple of beautiful plays in terms of defensive responsibility and generating offense a couple of really nifty smooth plays transitioning at the blue line uh controlling the puck getting it deep into the zone late in a period that's the kind of stuff you want to see that says okay you're a Slavkovsky. maybe this is someone who deserved to go first overall maybe this is someone who can be a significant part of the team's future that's what Montreal fans are looking for although Brock I'm still a little bummed out you, you never want to blow two two goal leads in a game I mean allowing two goals in the last four minutes of the game to force overtime like oh, that's a bummer you, you know that that's not an easy <laughs> pill to swallow no and I, I gotta be honest with you I was I was writing the game off. I thought, well, two goals with, you know, about five, six minutes left in the game. And, you know, Sheldon Keith pulled the pulled the trigger of saying, okay, come on, Samson off. Let's, let's pull this. And it worked out. Wait, but Brock, always... no, Brock, you have to explain. Like, you just used a lot of names. You didn't say what happened. So uh, Sheldon Keith, head coach of the Toronto Maple Leafs, decided to pull goaltender Elia Samson off with about five-ish minutes yeah. left, maybe a little yeah. more, maybe a little less. And that gives you an extra attacker, of course. And they scored, and then he did that same similar move shortly thereafter, and they tied it up again. Yeah, Sometimes gutsy. those moves are, are not going to work. And when it works out, you look at it and you go, wow, this worked out really well. And if it, if it doesn't work out, Toronto's one of those fan bases that might have been pointing fingers and saying, eh, a little too early to do this. But it paid off for Sheldon Keefe, head coach, yesterday. Gutsy. And, uh, so gutsy yeah. gutsy decision and it, like you said it paid off the thing that's so notable last night watching toronto play and this was known going into the season the level of skill offensive skill and puck possession the toronto maple leafs possess is just amazing and newly acquired defenseman john klingberg showed it off a couple times last night batting pucks out of the air controlling pucks at the blue line moving the pucks to his star forward group ahead of him this guy is a defensive liability but brock the skill level and the upside of skill on toronto they're going to be a tough out for anybody any given night the idea that you can score five goals on them and they're still going to win the game tells you a lot about what you need to know about this team yeah for sure it, it does i you know it, it's interesting when you when you watch the game and you kind of get to know you know who's around and and preseason tells you a lot but doesn't tell you much at the same time and i, I really liked what i saw from the toronto maple leafs but i also like i said i really liked what i saw from montreal as well if you're looking at it from the proper lens of rebuild and all that kind of stuff so really really good compelling game and uh we continue the the trend uh, as uh we'll see how things go in a canadian team market but good start for the 7 p.m eastern <laughs> game for sure brock a less compelling game happened at 10 p.m eastern time the vancouver canucks absolutely throttled the edmonton oilers when was the final score 8-1 8-2 what was the final yeah, score in that one 8-1 oh eight my one gosh a beat down so I have a two-part question here for you. First of all, 
were you surprised that uh, Edmonton Oilers goaltender Jack Campbell got the start? And secondly, how long of a leash? And I do recognize the fact that this is game one. I do recognize that. But how long of a leash do you give Jack Campbell, who you've spent a lot of money on, a lot of years, all that, before you say, I'm going to go back to Stuart Skinner? Well, you mentioned the reason why I'm not surprised they went with him in game one. They signed him to a big contract on a lot of term. They want him to be their starting goalie, even though he lost the job last year. But Stuart Skinner, their young goaltender, their emerging goaltender, was horrific in the playoffs. Like, he was awful in the playoffs. So I understand why Edmonton would want to go there with Jack Campbell. But getting lit up the way he did last night, Vancouver looked like they had something to prove, and Brock, it looked like Edmonton maybe spent a little too much time reading their own headlines going into the season. Yeah, for sure. I, I, you got to go with the guy that's your, your number one. You, you've done this by by giving him term, giving him money. You got to go with this. And and part of this is you got to look at this and say it's game one. I know a lot of people don't like to look at that when you get blown out eight to one. It's hard to look and say yeah, it's game one. Let it go. But we need to see Jack Campbell get the money that he. He earned it and earn it for the Edmonton Oilers because this is a really good team, as we talked about, and can go high places. But if you don't have the goaltender that's going to stop the puck, not to be cliche on you here, but if you don't have that goaltender, you're not going to have a lot. Uh, a team, although they might be able to score six goals and win a game, you're not going to be able to dig yourselves out of an 8-1 game and just be able to do that all year. You need your goaltender to be your backstop simple and with apologies to ottawa calgary and winnipeg uh we are out of time we gotta go brock thank you for this have a great day thank you that is brock richardson at the ami sports desk coming up after the break the government of canada has joined the global coalition on telecommunications marco flala will break down the details this is now with dave brown on ami tv Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The Canadian government joined the Global Coalition on Telecommunications earlier this month. The coalition includes the United Kingdom, the United States, Australia, and Japan. The agreement is designed to improve the reliability and security of telecom services. Mark Aflalo has more details. Mark is the co-host of Access Tech Live. Hey, good morning, Mark. Good morning, Dave. I hear that uh, you want me to try and explain this a little bit clearer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Try, try, try to dumb this down a little bit for me because I'm not okay. the sharpest tool in the shed when it comes to a telecom and technology. So what are oh, the objectives on. of this coalition? Okay, so I mean, as you said, the coalition is a, is a group of countries and organizations, and their goal is really um, to kind of unify technology and the way we use it to communicate to make sure that it, it's safe and well. What they want to do really is make sure that, that, that the different companies that are involved are using technology that's cross-compatible and a technology that gives us choices no matter where we are in the world. 
all in an effort to make sure that it is less expensive and or at least a competitive landscape so that no matter where you go, you're not going to be bombarded with places that are incredibly high telecom fees versus places that are a lot cheaper. There was a time when the U.S. was way ahead of Canada and they were paying you know $25 a month for unlimited cellular. And it took many, many years for that to come to Canada. Finally, it's here, but our prices are still a little higher. And people are complaining about this all the time. Every time we ever see any price changes or hikes or any any fluctuation, we always compare it to what other countries are doing. Mm. And this coalition is designed to try to keep things on a level playing field. So, so what's the tangible impact for a Canadian consumer? I, I know it's a little bit of speculation, but what's the tangible impact of saying, hey, we're part of this coalition? I mean, the, the, the goal at the end of the day, obviously, uh, in leveling that playing field and making sure that everybody's playing on the fair game, um, is that the technology we use will work wherever we are in the world. It's going to you know, ensure that if you are traveling to Dubai, if you're traveling to uh, Asia, if you're traveling to South Africa, that your technology is going to work, that you're not necessarily going to need to buy a local SIM card or use a different device. The standards will be the same, and the communication standards will be similar as well, not only from a technology perspective, but from a cost and availability perspective. You want to get off a plane no matter where you're going and turn on your phone and it just works. You don't want to ask questions. You don't want to have to worry about spending hundreds of dollars before you leave the house yeah. to make sure you've got the, the proper roaming plan. So it's really about giving people the peace of mind, but also giving people the choice, you know, letting people choose to to roam between carriers, to switch carriers if they feel they're getting a better deal at the plate and, and not feel like they have to, okay, I got to go buy, you know, five new phones for my whole family here. I could take what I have because the technology is compatible and will work no matter where I am in the world. If I want to pick up and move to France today, I know my technology will work. And this coalition's job is to try and keep everybody at least in the same ballpark, you know, yeah. so that it's easier across the board for consumers at the end of the day. What about development? What about technological development as one of these countries might jump ahead with, say, dare I say it, 6G, like 5G is barely fully rolled out yet, but let's talk about 6G. But how much yeah. of this is about making sure there's information sharing in regards to building new infrastructure? Well, I mean, the, the good thing about telecom in general, especially when it comes to wireless, is that there are not many players out there, you know? You hear stories about Apple trying to make their own modems, but they're still using Qualcomm chips. Qualcomm is is a market leader in the world. They own a lot of the intellectual property, which means that nobody can really even make a chip unless they they pay them for it. So at the end of the day, people are like, why are we going to do this ourselves when this one company is doing all this great R&D? So it's making sure that everybody has access to that technology when it comes out and that there's no reasons that people wouldn't, you know, whether it be, uh, you know, government sanctions for whatever reason. It's making sure that whatever is developed uh, gives everybody the opportunity to at least take advantage of that technology and mm. deliver solutions that are on an equal playing field. Mark, when I look at the names of the countries that are signed on here, the UK, yeah. the US, Australia, Japan, Canada, I'm seeing one major global player left out, and that's China. And not to once again bring this back to the 5G conversation, but as diplomatic relationships deteriorated with China's government, companies like Huawei and ZTE that were actually building 5G networks in Canada got boxed out. And all of a sudden, yeah. uh, Swedish companies started getting brought in. I think it was Motorola or Ericsson that got brought in to start. Ericsson, Nokia's involved. Nokia is involved. I mean, yeah. so, so you started bringing in some of these other countries to do some work that are, had already been started by China. How much a 
this agreement is about limiting the influence of China in telecom, or maybe even not limiting the influence, but continuing to box them out as countries are saying, we don't want China involved in our infrastructure. You, you know the, 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 the phrase and the term, it's a way above my pay grade? Um, I, I, you know, I really obviously couldn't tell you categorically whether that was a reason here or an impetus or, you know, you know, any kind of driving force. I think that when you look at the landscape of tech in, in the world, look at Apple as an example, they are they're constantly looking for ways to diversify their manufacturing, to make sure they have plants in the U.S., in Vietnam, in, in, in Mexico, uh, so that they're not as reliant on China. And I think to say that there's no influence there would be a lie because there's got to be some there, but I don't think anybody would actually admit it. Okay, let's uh, pivot off this to what's coming <laughs> up later today on Access Tech Live with you and Stephen Scott. Well, you know, it's our fifth show, so we figured let's uh, push the envelope here and let's send Stephen on the road. Ah. So Stephen is actually going to be joining us from the show floor at CES Unveiled in Amsterdam. Don't Whoa. tell anybody. Whoa. I haven't told them yet. So hopefully it works, and that way we can go to more places in the future. Stephen Scott live from Amsterdam. I know. Uh, Alone, too. This, this Stephen Scott, what a what, what a character. So what, what's what's on the chopping block? What's on the agenda? Well, we're going to be talking all about the, some really cool companies that are making their way to CES Unveiled. This is kind of a precursor to the big CES Consumer Electronics Show in Vegas in January. So a lot of cool companies that either can or can't make it to that big show are going to be showcasing their wares. Stephen had an opportunity to sit down with a bunch of these companies. We're going to bring you those conversations, plus the head of CES Unveiled in Amsterdam as well. Plus, we've got some other fun stuff coming up. We're going to talk about the news of the week and uh, check in with our friend Chad Lehman from the Neil Squire Society, all about a holiday campaign they've got going right on. Right on. Lots to come. Mark, I cannot believe it's already the fifth show. Where is time going? Uh, yeah, when we say it's 44, then I'm going to be like, what happened? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> and we're uh, rapidly approaching uh, the thousandth episode of Now with Dave Brown. Uh, oh, no, no, no celebrations planned yet, other than maybe uh, me going away and never coming back. Let's uh, celebrate Mark. Montreal. Yeah, yeah. Ooh. See, now we're talking. Uh, I was catering. I, 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 smoked meat. Mark, I was in Montreal last weekend, and I didn't get to go get smoked meat from my favorite place because the timing didn't work out with my uh, train. Uh, my train was leaving at 1 o'clock, and the place only opened at 11.30, and I, I didn't want to cut it too close, you know, on a Thanksgiving Monday. So so I had to go, to, only, I, I had to, go to some parcel. If only you knew meats. someone, Dave, who could pick you up and drive you and make sure you had that, who lived in the city. Yeah, you never call uh, when you come to town. I, I, you live in the West Island. It's very far. I would make my way to wherever you are to make sure that I <laughs> oh, see you. Oh, that's kind of you. Mark, have a great day. <laughs> you too. That's Mark Aflalo. He's one of the hosts of Access Tech Live. You can find that show every day, noon Eastern time. Not every day, every Thursday, noon Eastern time on AMI-tv. You can find The Pulse on AMI-audio this weekend on The Pulse. Judah Gupta will chat with author Ashley Shaw, Ashley, Ashley Shu, about her new book, Against Techno-Ableism. The book explores the relationship between disability, identity, technology, and ableism. That's The Pulse Weekends, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on AMI-audio. And, of course, you can find The Pulse on podcast platforms, including YouTube. Coming up next, the memoir North of Normal has been adapted into a movie. Michael McNeely shares his thoughts on the film. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv.
There are lots of ways for you to get in touch with the show. Things that you like, things that you didn't. Doesn't matter, we have thick skin. Social media, lots of channels available to you at Accessible Media on Twitter slash X, at Accessible Media on TikTok. Why not tag the network on a little video? Let your face be seen and your voice be heard on TikTok at Accessible Media. If you prefer Instagram or Facebook, at Accessible Media Inc. is where you find those two points of contact at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook and Instagram. If you feel like really typing out your thoughts, maybe writing a letter, you can't actually mail it to us, but you can send an email, feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca, or pick up the phone and give the show a call, 1-866-509-4545. That's 1-866-509-4545. I don't mind how you do it. I just want to hear your thoughts. Like I said, no matter what you hear on the show, if it rubs you the right way or the wrong way, ruffles your feathers or gives them a good stroke i want to hear what you think so chime in 1-866-509-4545 welcome back it's now with dave brown on ami tv the memoir north of normal has been adapted into a movie the book is by cs sunrise pearson the film stars sarah gadon and amanda fix before michael mcneely shares his thoughts on the film let's take a clip from the film's trailer a mother and daughter hug outside a bus station who looks after you my mom does now they dance on a beach. I was living with my grandparents in the Yukon for the last six years. I moved around a couple times with my mom and one of her boyfriends. Carl and I love each other, and he's an Aries. Fire! Something Fire! burns Fire! in the Fire! bed of a truck. The driver flings it away. Mom, see we're going. So why'd they break up? They all break up. Mom and daughter walk away from the driver. Canoes float on a lake. It's a bear! What you gonna do next time you see a bear? You gonna run away? What you gonna do? The little girl and grandpa do threat poses. I'm gonna go to the city. We can't leave, we just got here. Not you, sweetheart, just me. The little girl looks shocked. Years later, in another pickup truck. I'm not going anywhere, Sia. Mm -hmm. They all say it, they all leave. I'm trying to make us a family. We already are a family. We can't just be the two of us. Why not? Why can't you just choose me? Entertainment critic Michael McNeely has thoughts on North of Normal. Michael is in studio today alongside his intervener, Jill. Hey, good morning, Michael. How are you? Michael, I am good. I saw a preview for this film over the summer. I didn't get a chance to catch it while it was in theaters. You said you found it on iTunes, which is cool. You thought the adaptation was good, but not great. You're going to walk through some ways the film could have been made better, starting with the development of the character's childhood. What do you think this film needed more of? So you're asking, well, I think the film made a point of what did, it need, what did it need more of in regard oh, to the development of the character's childhood? So, ultimately, I felt the trailer is a bit misleading. Um, there's a lot of events in the trailer that make it seem like the film takes place outdoors. 
in the child's upbringing. It actually is less than 10 minutes of the film's runtime. That old, that trailer is actually filmed in the beginning. Um, I wish that there was more of the wilderness aspect, more of being raised outdoors, because Sia has a very interesting history and backstory. She was living in the Yukon for most of her childhood, I think up until she was about 10 years old. And I just felt that the movie rushed through that, and it rushed through the more interesting parts of the story. And I, I want to know why. I feel like someone in the White House room should have stuck their, stuck their foot down and said, you know, this is the interesting part of the story, and let's stay here for a bit longer. Let's keep working with these characters. And the setting, this amazing setting, by the way, which you got to see in the trailers, outdoors, and, you know, our Canadian wilderness is definitely beautiful, so we should stick with that a little bit more. Robert Carlyle plays Papa Dick. How do you think his character was portrayed? So the story behind Papa Dick is that he took his entire family when his daughter was pregnant at 15. He took the entire family to the wilderness. We don't know why. It's not mentioned in the movie. But maybe we can guess that he was a bit ashamed of his daughter and he wanted to go into the wilderness. Or maybe he just felt that that was the best place for the family. So Papa Dick is a bit scary because he has that power to uproot the family. He has the power to make his daughter feel like she failed him by having sex at 15. Although, you know, fairness, was probably having sex a lot more than just 15. Um, so... At this, at this point, we see Papa Dick being mean towards his daughter, but being very nice towards his granddaughter, who is Sia, and who is the person that this book is about. So it's interesting to have someone who can, you know, flip, flip, flip like a coin and have different aspects of his personality. So again, I wish we had more time with Papa Dick to understand his things. Michael, in these last couple of answers, you've identified that the film does a little bit of time jumping here. How did that affect the way that you experienced the sequence of events? So, when we look at stories that typically have to do with PTSD or trauma, of course, there is, you know, jumping around in time because people's memories are not linear. So sometimes we have films that want to pay homage to that by making us go to the same thing as the characters. But without a skilled hand, it doesn't often work. Um, here, I see what they were trying to do, but I feel that there would have been more momentum, more narrative momentum, if you just told the story from beginning to end normally, and then show the trauma happening when she starts to identify that she has these traumatic memories. And the point of the point that I want to share with everyone is that she does have PTSD from a sexual assault. That is shown in glimpses, so it's still triggering for people, but it's maybe 15 seconds of one time, thankfully. So if you're going to accept the format that the film was put out in, that it is a little bit time jumpy, how could the filmmaker have made that experience better? What about something like a narrator? That's a good question. I think, I think first of all, I would have liked to say some narration. I think narration would have helped to say, you know, my name is Sia. I have been through these experiences, but I have survived. I am better now than I was before. What's really interesting about Sia is that 
and she became a model when she was 13. She traveled the world. She went to Paris. She went to New York City, but we don't see that in this film, we, because I think they got the rights to the first book that she wrote, but not the second book. So maybe you're kind of cut in there, but I think you could have made some references to the second book or to the events of what happened later in Sia's life. Because ultimately, we leave her at, when she's 13 years old, we leave her just at the beginning of her modeling career. And when I finished the movie, I thought she was going to leave that, but it turns out that she found success in it. So I feel like we, you know, like in documentaries, we often see things at the end of the documentary that tell us what happened to the people. I think we should have had something like that in this movie, but we didn't. What's your general thought around narration? I know there are some film critics that claim that narration is one of the laziest things a filmmaker can do. Well, this is a loaded question. Um, I know, I know. I'm putting you on the spot with a tough one today. Well, I mean, I think narration can be a great tool, especially if the words are literary, which I'm assuming that Sia's memoir, which I have not read, is literary. I think the least one could do is show that she said these words, that she wrote them down somewhere. So in the process of writing them down somewhere, you're saying them out loud, and then you might as well act them. So I think, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with a little bit of narration at the beginning and the end. Just to set the scene, I don't think it's lazy. I think we've talked about this before, there's showing and telling, and sometimes, you know, there's not enough of either. I've, I've told you this before, Martin Scorsese is my favorite filmmaker of all time, and this guy loves using narration, and it's great. Goodfellas, Casino, Wolf of Wall Street. In all these cases, the narration made the movie better. I don't think it's lazy. I just think it's lazy if you do it badly. Well, yeah, it's lazy if you say, you know, Michael Chilean and Dave are doing a, they're doing a cable television or they're doing a podcast, and then you go right into it, I think. I think you mentioned Goodfellas. I think Goodfellas is amazing because it really takes us into the mindset of what it's like to be a boy. Because, you know, there's things you can show, but you can't you can't show the inner workings unless you do some really dream montage or some mm -hmm. strange thing. So I think in some ways you have to say, you know, after I saw that boy beating to a pope, my life must change forever. Mm. I think just that sentence is enough. Yeah. And just don't overdo it. I mean, like, anything you have in moderation is good. Michael, I, I will confess to you that when I saw this trailer in the theaters, I found it to be compelling, and I was a bit bummed out by how fast it went out of theaters, because I was really considering trying to get to it and see it in a theater, because I there was something about the trailer that drew me in. I, I thought it looked really interesting. and. I get the impression that even though you've got your critiques, there is stuff you liked about it. So what do you think the adaptation of North of Normal did well? Well, I think what's really interesting is the relationship between Zia and her mother, who was pregnant at 15 with her. Um, I think it's really fascinating to see that, that Michelle, who's the mother, maybe did not age past 15 in some respects, but more or less had maturity thrust upon her. Michelle is the kind of person that will um, think that any man who comes in her life will save her, and in turn would save her daughter. So she does have some, you know, goodness in her. 
her dependence on men is, of course, backfires spectacularly, and Sia needs to realize that her mother is never going to change, that she can't change her mother. Um, and that's really interesting to me. I think that's part of the reason why we stopped being stopped spending so much time in the wilderness, because we wanted to come to terms about this relationship. And I think the acting was phenomenal in terms between um, the daughter and the mother and the grandfather. And so the family dynamics were just so interesting that I could spend maybe a TV show watching that. But ultimately, I appreciate the fact that this has a lesson about, you know, not being able to change your parents, not being able to change your family, but trying to learn to accept them and find a way to move on past the harms that they've done. Would you recommend North of Normal? I think I would recommend it, because the story is important, and I think I would just caution that it could have been better, and hopefully someday they'll remake it again, or they'll, they'll do the second book, and that second book would include some things from the first book. Mm. Reading between the lines, do you feel like perhaps the story was incomplete? Well, yes, I, I think. There's, there's spend more time in the wilderness and spend more time with Papa Dick, spend more time trying to understand how she survived this and how she thrived. Yeah. Because right now I think she lives in Vancouver and she's raising three children. Yeah. But we don't know that she got there yet. It, 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 it's a question that I think a lot of filmmakers and directors and writers have to consider now. Am I making a movie or am I making a miniseries? And it, it does strike me that we've, we've shifted to a time where more people are making miniseries or TV series rather than movies. This might have been the case where somebody tried to go in the other direction, sort of do the zig instead of the zag, and maybe made the wrong choice. It's possible, I think. I think the Canadian film industry is complex, and it's hard to find grants and funding. Right. So maybe somebody just said, you know, met this in an hour and a half movie, but I think it just needed more time to breathe, and it needed more time to be in the wilderness, because, mm. again, Canada's wilderness is beautiful and frightening mm. at the center. Absolutely. Michael, thank you for this. Have a great day. You too. That's Michael McNeely, entertainment critic, with a review of North of Normal. You can find the film on iTunes for rent, as well as for rent on Amazon Prime. Amazon Prime Video, Amazon Video, Amazon Prime Video, the major river retailer, as I like to call it on the air. Coming up after the break, the Mona Lisa, probably the most famous piece of art of all time. It is celebrated, and some folks say it's overrated. Where do you stand? Alex Smythe poses this question in the roundtable chat. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Lots of live programming heading your way on AMI-tv today. Noon Eastern time, Access Tech Live with Mark Aflalo and Stephen Scott somewhere in Amsterdam. Mark claims that Stephen is at some sort of CES showcase. I'll believe it when I see it. And at 2 p.m. Eastern time, Kelly and Ramya hit the airwaves for another edition of that show. And Ramya Emuthan stops by now to offer some insight on what's coming up. Hey, good morning, Ramya. 
Morning, Dave. Yeah, we're talking frozen foods with Mary Mammalini. Oh, yeah. I know. Oh, I don't know if she's going to mention my frozen samosas and things like that, but she's saying essential frozen foods. So maybe we're just sticking to like frozen berries and stuff. Okay. You you know, she's giving us her frost. In the the world of like high food inflation, that has Mm -hmm. trickled into the world of frozen foods, but maybe not quite as much. I bought some really affordable frozen broccoli broccoli and blueberries last week, and I was delighted by how affordable they were. Exactly. The flash frozen is the way to go for any of your fruits and veggies. That's also my opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, we have accessible gaming with Marcus McCracken. He's talking about the uh, the newest NHL video game, some of its um, accessible features, and he says in parentheses, or lack thereof. <laughs> <laughs> We'll get a review of that. And as usual, we have our um, roundtable hosted by Kelly McDonald this week. So uh, Brock Richardson is joining us for that. Oh, man, that uh, new NHL game, the uh, reviewers on the YouTube, uh, not giving it rave reviews, not exactly Mm -hmm. giving EA Sports a lot of love. I'll tell you this, Ramya. I know sometimes with these sports topics, you want a little silver bullet in your pocket. Let me tell you this. EA, a couple of years ago, Electronic Arts, did a really mm-hmm. nice job in terms of setting up some like beautiful contrast on their menu screens with the dark background and like the yep. big, bright, large fonts in terms of uh, the in terms of the actual menus. And then a couple years ago, they backslid on that one a little bit and have yet to uh, reinstate it. So it's always one of these things where I talk about the notion of, oh, you made something more accessible or more inclusive. This is great. And then some new designer comes in, no, 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 no. We're going to take that away from you. And it really ticked me off because I spent $40 on that stupid game. And how much of that falls on us, right? The feedback, the reviewing, the yes, we are still out here. We use these accessibility features. I'm not saying that that's the essential uh, way to keep in touch with these content cr- or uh, developers, but um, it is something that I'm finding more and more, uh, you know, necessary. You know, part of the convo. You know, Alex Smythe, before I bring you in here for the roundtable part of the conversation, I know that you spoke to Denny Boudreau about this uh, a couple months ago when I was on vacation, sort of that ebb and flow when it comes to the accessibility of video games, because you're a little bit of a video gamer yourself over there. Uh, yeah, Dave, and, you know, I completely agree that there's uh, some additions in the same franchises like the EA Sports, like NHL games or the football games where, yeah, you'll get a couple years where it's okay. You know, it's really easy to kind of identify as the high contrast, it's a dark background of the white text, and then they switch it up and be like, you know what, we're going to do white background in tiny little uh, <laughs> uh, fonted uh, text, and good luck with that. So it, it's always that kind of weird struggle. Where where do you land? What is the what is needed for accessibility? And, and it extends beyond just sports games. I yeah. mean, like, you know, even, even like big RPG games, like I finished playing Starfield recently, it's just the challenge is trying to find and identify where you need to go and having those guidelines that will just randomly disappear on you. Mm-hmm. Not very accessible, not very helpful, especially if you're lost and you need a bit of guidance. Yeah, and, and and where can you go to make some of the adaptations? Because I know a game like The Last of Us, for example, The Last of Us Part Two, mm-hmm. really made a point of saying, we're going to let you customize your preferences. And then you go looking in some of these games to say, well, it shouldn't be that hard to set up a contrast mode or set up a big font mode but no no nowhere to be found not 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 for you sorry you don't want to play this hockey game and they're right i'll just keep playing my old hockey game from 2021 and you know that's all that matters to me okay Ramya, 
2 p.m. Eastern time, Kelly and Ramya hits the airwaves. Alex Smythe, I already brought you in here, but you want to talk about art. Hoity-toity, bougie Smythe over here wants to talk about art. <laughs> yeah, the finer things in life, Dave, because researchers have uncovered new information about the Mona Lisa. And uh, Ben Thomas, he paints us a picture. Leonardo da Vinci may have been in an experimental mood when he started painting the Mona Lisa. That's the suggestion from new research published in the Journal of the American Chemical Society. Scientists used x-rays to examine the chemical structure of a tiny speck of the masterpiece. They found the oil paint recipe Leonardo used as his base layer to prepare the panel had its own distinctive chemical signature, a rare compound, plumbonacrite. Confirming what art historians had previously only hypothesized, that Leonardo most likely used lead oxide powder to thicken and help dry his paint as he began working on the now celebrated portrait of the woman with the enigmatic smile. I'm Ben Thomas. <laughs> So that report, you know, it's it's a lot of information. I don't think the average consumer really cares all that much about, obviously, for, for the art historians, those really involved in the industry and the field and the research. They're, they're excited about it. But Alex, you know, Alex, I literally thought that was going somewhere else. I thought that report was going to start with like, yeah, we found a hash pipe and there was uh, hash oils all <laughs> over the all over the uh, painting, kind of like with uh, Billy Shakespeare there uh, a couple years ago when they found when they found some pipes in his uh, in his house. Yeah, so this is more about like you know the the compounds of the paints you use. I, I don't want to focus on that. I, that to well, me, if you, that's, if you that's inhale enough, if, if you inhale enough compounds, it's kind of like ash. <laughs> Fair enough, Dave. But I want to focus on the Mona Lisa itself for a bit and talk about the world of art because the Mona Lisa is one of the most iconic, maybe the most iconic painting out there in history. It is both celebrated, but also viewed as overrated. So I want to find out from you guys, where do you land on the Mona Lisa? Is it, you know, iconic or is it overrated? Ramia, let's start with you. Overrated. Like I went to the Louvre when I was in um, Paris and there was definitely something to checking out these art pieces in real life um but they're so tiny in real life by the way mm. for some reason i thought these uh, arts uh, like these paintings would be gigantic but no they're these tiny little things behind uh huge huge like areas that are walled off and barriered off but anyways they're overrated but the thing that i wanted to tell you guys was i was part of this crowdsource description thing that Vocali in uh, Vancouver is putting together. And they're looking for, you know, a bunch of narrators to um, narrate uh, the same, okay, descriptions for the same piece of art, but done in many different ways. So, you know, you get perspectives from everyone and anyone, just whoever. And the Mona Lisa was one of them. And it was like so fun reading descriptions that aren't so formal um it might be somebody looking at the mona lisa for the first time or mm. somebody uh, looking at the mona lisa who isn't a fan of it like you're just getting all kinds of subjectivity from the art and i thought that was the most interesting somebody said you know this orange lady is in the way or whatever it was it was just really fun and a different way of looking at art that is for so many years you know meant to be this uh, high class pristine like oh if you know art you know the mona lisa kind of thing mm -hmm. just a very chill way of uh interacting with art 
That, that was a long way of saying, you said overrated. That was a long way of saying overrated. Yeah. yeah. Uh, can, can I go off the board here, Alex, and say, like, yeah. I don't care. As someone who's legally blind, I just do not care about, vis like, paintings, visual art of that nature, because I get nothing out of it. Like, like when I was doing my liberal arts degree at Marianopolis College in Montreal, you had to take an art history class, and I sat there in the first class of the semester, and they were like, look at this painting, let's analyze this, and look at the blah, blah, blah. And I immediately went to the like supervisor of the program and I was like, can I transfer into like a music history class where, you know, it's something that I can actually engage with with the arts? Because mm -hmm. yeah, like I think like I'm willing to make some sacrifices for things like movies because there is an audio and auditory component to it, Alex, and you know, big moving screens. I just don't care about paintings. You guys can call me gauche or unclassy <laughs> if you like, but it's just not for me. Yeah, well, and I understand that completely, Dave. You know, all three of us have uh, varying degrees of vision loss. And so for myself, like I too, like you, Rami, I, I was able to go to the Louvre. I, I got to see the Mona Lisa. And again, it's it's a bit odd because, you know, you're always presented this image of a, a large painting and it fills right? up a page in a book and you get to it and it's quite small, like, you know, your average painting size, you know, maybe... I, I, uh, two feet by like three feet or something like that. And it's behind a massive glass case, behind a massive barrier uh, to prevent people to get close. And then when you're going to see it, How there's probably about- How am I ever gonna about... get a tactile experience? Exactly. And then you you also have like six people deep in front of you trying oh, yeah. looking at it as well. That said, there were plenty of other paintings in the Louvre I was blown away by, and some of it just the sheer scale and the size of them because you know, the Mona Lisa, yeah, is much smaller than you expected. But in those same pages of those books, you see some of these other art pieces like, um, uh, you know, the uh, coronation of Napoleon or or the uh, wedding at Carnea and stuff like that. And these are literally 20, 30 foot long paintings. Yeah. And there's no scale and scope to it. And you're just blown away. It's like, why is this painting not as celebrated as the Mona Lisa? Just the sheer detail that you can actually walk up to it, be a couple inches from it, look at it, and you can still see the fine detail and just on the sheer mass and scale of the paintings themselves. That was really what blew me away. So Mona Lisa, overrated. So Alex, you had this uh, this theory, this hypothesis mm -hmm. that the Mona Lisa is the most celebrated or iconic piece of art of all time. Well, I brought up fake news, CNN.com. You know that CNN.com, <laughs> total fake news. And they have the top 10 pieces of paintings of all time. And number one is the Mona Lisa. So well done by you, Alex. Your hypothesis is clear. <laughs> Number two, also Leonardo da Vinci, The Last Supper mm -hmm. uh, okay. was the was the number two. Number three, The Starry Night by Vincent mm. Van Gogh, uh, one ear and all, if you will. Number four is The Scream by Edward Munch. Not necessarily familiar with that one. Maybe if I'd taken my art history class, I would have. I would have. I would. I would know that one. I'm doing this off my phone in real time here, so uh, so so bear with me, folks. Uh, number five, uh, Gern Guernicai by Pablo Picasso. Okay, yeah, okay, Picasso. That seems that seems like a reasonable one there. Uh, I'm really showing my butt here. I'm really showing my butt cheeks on this one. Uh, the Kiss by uh, Gustav Klimt from 1907, I don't know. I'm not aware of that one. Okay, all right, there you go. This is where our culture comes to an end. <laughs> Number seven, Girl with a Pearl Earring. That's by oh, uh, Johannes uh, Vernier. 
Wow, I am really, this is tough. Can we talk about Bach or Beethoven? It's more my, it's more my <laughs> speed. Uh, the Birth of Venus by Sandro Botticelli, 1485. That one was mm -hmm. painted, uh, for in case you're wondering. Number nine is Las Meninas by Diego Velasquez from 1656. And finally, number 10, Creation of Adam by Michelangelo. So there you go. Uh, that's what everyone loves on TV. They love someone just reading a list. Uh, and, but uh, you know, Alex, I think I think your theory is sound. That Mona Lisa of all those of all those paintings sounds like the most famous. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, it's just referenced in pop culture far more than others. But I, I think there are plenty of other great ones, even off of that list that really deserve more love and, and kind of recognition just for the sheer volume, the scale, the detail, and, and just the, could stand some more cultural relevancy than, than they're, we're, they're getting right now. Yeah. Less than a minute on the board here, guys. What is your favorite art museum accessibility feature? I do like the tactile experience. I like groping the paintings. That's good for me. Alex, what about you? I, I love the immersive ones. Like you, you've seen uh, these touring um, uh, kind of shows where you can go in and it's a 3D, whether it's Van Gogh or, or uh, Salvador Dali or these ones. I really like that. You get the sights and the sounds and everything. Ramya, you said the word touch tour before and I, yep. I'm, a, I'm fond, I'm a fan. I like the groping of the arts. Absolutely, anything tactile. If you can take a painting even and make it a tactile experience, I'm so down. Which, uh, they, which they did at an exhibit that I went to at the uh, Human Rights Museum a couple years ago yeah. in Winnipeg. They got a bunch of photographers and they got a bunch of painters and they put everything into like textured uh, feeling uh, feeling things. It was really, really cool. Okay, that's it. Gotta go. Too busy uh, reading the lists to have a conversation. My apologies. 9 a.m. tomorrow morning, the show kicks off again. Until then, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. I'm Margaret Shepard of the AMI podcast, Tripping On Air. Every month, my co-host Alex Hajar and I spill the tea on what it's really like to live with MS. Watch Tripping On Air on YouTube or download wherever you get your pods.